Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. If you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music for details. And I'm also now available for speaking engagements. For more information on that, visit brentjensenmusic.com. All right, this week, I want to talk about the phenomenon we call KISS. Now, I'm of an age that nostalgically enslaves me to KISS as a rock fan. And the connection that was forged in those childhood formative years is indelible. It's lasted this long. And whether or not you call yourself a KISS fan to this day, that pull never quite goes away. Millions of people of my age range feel the same way, I'm sure. And now that the KISS End of the Road World Tour is working towards the band's final act, we're faced with something we've never been faced with before. The end of KISS as we know it. My KISS indoctrination happened when I was eight. And at that age, when you're presented with musical options like Loretta Lynn, Seals and Crofts, Donna Summer, or KISS, In 1977, KISS was the way obvious choice. What it really boils down to is that KISS closed the gap between my interest in comic book superheroes and my developing interest in music. KISS used the element of fantasy to lure me in like a musical Venus flytrap. They got me when I was at my most impressionable. You know, and as I consider this, I envision Gene Simmons rubbing his hands together and laughing fiendishly against a big backdrop of money, something I imagine he does a couple times a day. After I grew out of my childhood obsession with Kiss, I experienced a wide range of emotions when it comes to Simmons and Kiss. Because like I said, once that hook was set, the pull remains. Before I even heard one note of music, Kiss's image blitzkrieged my little eight-year-old mind. I saw fire. I saw blood. I saw sequins. I saw bombast that was larger than life. Kiss showed me power. Now, back then, Kiss was a radical departure from the Bay City Rollers, which was my previous favorite band. All the fantastical, ethereal, sinister elements were there to draw a curious youngster like me in, in addition to the blood and fire and bombast, of course, was the most interesting element of all, the full makeup. The makeup presented this irresistibility. It made Kiss unattainable, and of course, that much more desirable. As an eight-year-old kid, I played right into Kiss's hands for that reason. Almost at the point where, in line with the theatrics, I knew they were regular human beings, but a small part of me kind of wanted to believe that maybe they may not be. And this is really what the entire foundation of hard rock and heavy metal is based on. Fantasy, and a requisite need for escapism from everyday life. Kiss's real intrigue was based on a simple supply and demand principle. Stimulus-deprived fans craving a reality very different from the one that they presently occupied. I dove headlong into the Kiss fantasy as a kid. I wore the face paint on Halloween. 
that Kiss t-shirts to school and I always was on the hunt for anything related to Kiss that I could get my hands on. I was completely obsessed. The music was what it was. It wasn't Queen, it wasn't Yes, it wasn't Rush, but it was catchy. And even though Kiss's music in the 70s was more or less a secondary implement, once I was converted, this was where my taste for heavy metal came from. It wasn't a coincidence that bands like Motley Crue, Wasp, and other Kiss facsimiles furthered the process after Kiss took the makeup off. Kiss was kind of like headbanger kindergarten for me. Kiss music really only served as the soundtrack to the electric vaudeville act that took place before my eyes back then, and over the years, Simmons and Paul Stanley have admitted that the music isn't anything terribly special. They've even admitted to borrowing from other bands, specifically creating the main deuce riff from the Rolling Stones' Bitch by just flipping the chords and fashioning Hotter Than Hell from Freeze All Right Now. And there are loads of additional nicks if you listen closely. Making Love, for example, is unquestionably lifted from Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic, and on and on and on. Later on, I recognized that the KISS personalities were more or less transferable to those seen in average society. Paul Stanley was that guy you knew that always dressed with tacky flamboyance. He was outspoken, cocky. Simmons shared similar traits, but he was much more chauvinistic and craved everyone's attention, always. Drummer Peter Chris was the high school loner who drew caricatures of his teachers with exaggerated facial features alongside big pictures of flaming spliffs on his textbooks, except when he was smoking one in the bathroom. And then there was Ace Fraley, lead guitar, the quiet, mysterious one. He moved through the place speaking more with his vibe than with his mouth, projecting the same brand of cool that Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday did in Tombstone when he wasn't falling down wasted, which, for either of those guys, wasn't often. Fraley was my favorite KISS member by a very, very wide margin. He was probably the favorite of most KISS fans, primarily just because he played the coolest instrument in rock, lead guitar, thus inspiring legions of next-generation guitar heroes ranging from people like Pantera's Dimebag Daryl to Pearl Jam's Mike McCready, But the real reason Fraley was so attractive to KISS fans was because of the four original members of KISS, Fraley was the only member to actualize what KISS in fact sought to be. Mysterious, larger than life, and, well, cool. The irony is that Fraley, despite a non-leadership role in KISS, stole the show without even trying, despite being his distant self. I always felt like this was because that wispy androgyny that made Fraley's character so intriguing was because he actually was that person underneath the makeup. He wasn't acting. He was believable because he was really just playing a more decorated version of himself. A legitimate, organic, rock and roll guitar player in the vein of a Joe Perry or a Keith Richards. He was the most real and he was the most believable of all the KISS members. And I think this is why his 1978 solo record sold the most copies. It wasn't just because of the New York Groove cover tune. 
It was because Fraley's sound and his vibe and his authentic rock and roll swagger was what Kiss fans, primarily 70s hard rock fans, felt they should be listening to. This is how Kiss fans felt Kiss should really sound, I think. When I first got into Kiss as a kid, what made Fraley the most interesting member to me was what he didn't show me. In addition to being the coolest looking member, his real mystique came from his character's apathy. It made me want to know more about him. I would find out later that the irony of his character affiliation within Kiss, a spacey mystic from another planet, was that it covered up Fraley's real-life insecurities, and also because he spaced himself out regularly with booze and drugs. Now, anyone who knows anything about Fraley knows that he drank himself into oblivion more or less nightly for years and years and years. After the Kiss Heyday was over, I had attended a couple of those Kiss conventions in Toronto and bought up all that VHS bootleg live footage of him playing with Kiss in San Francisco in 74, Cobo Hall in 76, both nights in Houston in 1978. But the best find among those pre-internet bootlegs was that legendary Tom Snyder interview from 1979. And if you're a fan, you know what I'm talking about. The one where Fraley is absolutely blasted, stopping just short of getting his ass beaten by the visibly irate Simmons and Stanley, who are desperately trying to keep the interview together. The interview took place during the Dynasty era, which was basically the beginning of the disintegration of classic Kiss as we knew it. Peter Chris, apparently also on the sauce during that interview, but yet much quieter, would be booted from the band before the next record was released. Fraley would follow shortly afterwards. Both of them were out for the same reason, though it wasn't directly addressed until much later, not surprisingly, as substance abuse issues. The first time I saw the Snyder video, I kind of felt like I was seeing something I wasn't supposed to see. Fraley was completely out of control, way beyond the typical choreographed Kiss interview. And for the first time, Kiss had a visible and tangible realness about them. The first time I saw this video was long after the actual interview took place, around 1995, during a period of my rediscovering Kiss as a nostalgic totem. I would do this many times over the next couple of years. That initial Kiss obsession had loosened by the time their Creatures of the Night record was released, and while I had paid a lot less attention to the glittery shimmer of the Kiss franchise after that record, I still kept an eye on Fraley. Up to the point where he would eventually reunite with Kiss the following year, Fraley still drank legendarily. He seemed like a slightly tragic figure to me at this point. Now, I used to think that he shared some interesting similarities with the character Thomas Newton from Walter Tevis's 1963 novel, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Now, think about it. Both Fraley and Newton are from another planet. Newton was an alien taking help on Earth for the dying people of his planet called Anthea. And serious fans recall that Fraley used to claim that he was from planet Jandel. Both become increasingly wealthy on Earth. Both develop a fondness for alcohol that gives rise to instability. Duh. And both would have their real identities revealed. Newton's by the CIA. Fraley after Kiss took off their makeup. Both would be unsuccessful in their primary goals. Newton to save his people. 
frailly to save his career post-kiss. And finally, both would try to remain stoic in spite of failure. Newton creating a recording to send his people to say goodbye, and Fraley releasing several solo recordings for his fans that more or less say the same. I know that's mean, but I can tell you that I worshipped Ace Fraley as a kid. I seriously did. I did have as much different from most other KISS fans that had a favorite member they idolized. For some, maybe it was Paul. I myself could never have been into Stanley that way. I just, it, it wasn't my thing. I like him. I think that he did a great job as a performer and as a frontman. And, you know, props to him for his Phantom of the Opera run in Toronto, which I saw, and he killed it. And, you know, I've never seen Stanley phone it in in all the times that I've seen KISS live. He clearly prides himself on putting on a great show. I know there's a lot of talk right now about his vocal quality and the use of tapes and all that, but I'm not going to get into that here. The guy's a legendary entertainer. We'll leave it at that. Peter Chris, he had a fantastic rock and roll voice, maybe the best in the band. But I always thought that the cat motif was a bit weird. It wasn't anything I could get into as a kid. And, I mean, he was back behind the drums. It's almost impossible to make an impression from back there when you're competing against a demon that spits blood and breathes fire and a lead guitarist whose guitar smokes and levitates up and away into the darkness and a preening, strutting, asexual banshee with these big red lips, right? Gene Simmons' image as the demon was the obvious choice, his favorite in theory, but... Maybe that's why I didn't buy it. It just seemed too obvious to me. Too aggressive, almost too geared towards getting attention. Simmons was kind of like the Kiss commercial for me, like an advertisement. So I tended to look past him for what was on the inside of Kiss. Now that's not to say that Simmons didn't get my attention when it counted, because he certainly did. I spent a lot of time by myself as a kid, and much of that time was in turn spent listening to music. I used to sit in my basement listening to Kiss records in particular, and I established a connection to the band through the lyrics that I heard. And of all the Kiss songs I listened to, I was especially preoccupied by a song called Great Expectations from the Destroyer record, wherein Simmons pontificates about the role he plays as a rock star establishing further distance between the KISS fantasy and the reality of the fans. I always keyed into one of the lines in that song every time it played. The line goes, In the din it seems, I'm a million miles away. It turns out I met Simmons at a book signing in Toronto 26 years later, and it was a funny, gratifying experience. And I thought it would be cool to shake hands with the God of Thunder. After spending a lot of time reflecting and thinking about the impact that Kiss had on me up to that point. So I went down to the bookstore and waited for hours in a line that snaked through the store's shelves. There's a lot of people there. And while I progressed through the queue, I tried to think of something half-decently relevant to say to Simmons, other than the garden variety stuff like, I love you, man, you know. I thought a lot about my fascination with Kiss as a kid growing up in small town northern Ontario, and then I suddenly remembered that line from Great Expectations and the impression that it had on me back then. So I thought it might be worthwhile to 
try to frame it in some quick chat. I knew I wouldn't have a long time instead of the regular stuff that I could hear Simmons already getting from people in front of me. The guy right in front of me was actually crying. He was super emotional. And he said, I love you, man. So now I'm a few moments away from standing face to Kabuki face with Gene Simmons. Man, I felt like I already knew him somehow. So I I started to freak out a little bit. What was I going to say? What exactly would I say? What would he say? My heart was really pounding as I was getting closer. So now I'm next. And because there were so many people there to see him, his handlers were whisking people along, allowing for maybe 15 to 20 seconds of gushing, like tops. So after some consideration, I had prepared my idea of what I wanted to say. I wanted to try and say something a little bit more meaningful. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a sap just like the rest of these other poor bloody saps standing in line for almost half a day in exchange for 20 seconds of FaceTime. As a matter of fact, at this point, I was wondering if I was even going to be able to muster anything at all because I was actually getting super nervous. All those images and the memories of a band I'd spent so much of my childhood focused on were running through my head. And this was my big chance to make a connection. I took a deep breath and I stepped forward. Gene says in this really deep voice, how you doing, boss? And I gulped. I said, I'm doing great, Gene. How are you? Or something like that. And he says, good. How are they treating you in line? I said, fine. And I, I may as well have been eight years old again. He's sitting on this raised platform and I'm standing so our faces are like lined up eye to eye, about two and a half feet from each other. He had this kind of sinister, smirky smile on his face. My face was perverse wonderment, probably. So he signs my book and one of Simmons' monkeys opens the next guy's book and he's in the process of sliding it down the table to Simmons. So I got to get my bit in here. I say, you know, Gene, in the din it seemed... You're a million miles away, but not today. I can't tell you how great it is to meet you in person after 25 years of being a fan. You just made my world a lot smaller. Or something like that. The handler looks at me like I have three heads. Most people, you know, were thinking I was some kind of meth addict for saying that. I wondered too after I heard it, to be honest. Uh, But since that lyric best represented the visceral point of connection that I had with Kiss in my mind, I thought it would be the most apropos thing to say. And I I thought it would be cool that Simmons would get it, you know? And he started laughing and he said, you know, I wish I could come up with something as profound, but it's been a really long night. He didn't even realize that I was quoting one of his songs. (laughs) I shouldn't have been surprised. I guess he did write Great Expectations 25 years previous around 76, and it would have been considered filler on a record like Destroyer. So I chose not to try to jog Gene's memory, as I could feel his handler's cut eye burning a hole in the side of my face. Moving along, buddy, people are waiting. So, time to finish up. Gene offers his hand, and I shook it. And then I kind of surprised myself a little bit with what I did next. But it was reflexive. I, I just couldn't help it. I said, Gene, thank you for making me feel the way that you did all those years ago. (laughs) And then I I was like, what did I say that for? Oh my God. He looked me in the eye and he said, you're welcome. Thank you. And then 
I put my left hand on top of our clasped hands. And what did I say? Yep. I said, I love you, man. <laughs> as hard as I tried, I couldn't help it. I just completely regressed. But you know what? I couldn't be blamed for that. There's, there's meaning in this regression. The regression was the embodiment of what enjoying rock and roll is really all about. It's not, not being at all preoccupied with doing what you or anyone else thinks is right. It's just doing what naturally feels right to you. And that's what I did. I really couldn't be blamed for regression during this, an in-person exchange with somebody who had made such a significant contribution to my life in my formative years. After that, I realized it wasn't really necessary to hack on Gene Simmons and Kiss quite as hard as I had for their commercial enthusiasms. At one point, the preoccupation that Simmons had with money had actually compelled me to make a point of not contributing any further to the Kiss Commerce machine. No more concerts, no more records. I had actually been embarrassed to have been such an enthusiastic Kiss fan at that time. But I think the real source of my resentment towards Kiss was rooted in the fact that I couldn't see, or that maybe I didn't want to see, the fact that Kiss wasn't primarily about satisfying my personal fandom. Kiss was always a business. This just became more blatantly obvious as A, I got older and more reflective, and B, Kiss grew older and more desperate to sustain a humongous Kiss franchise by upping the ante with more creative product like Kiss condoms and Kiss coffins. All part of the Kiss master plan, really. And at the end of the day, I simply had to reconcile my childhood impressions of Kiss against what Kiss actually was. The merchandising irritated me because it compromises the innocent circumstances under which I learned Kiss. But you have to enjoy these things for what they are. It was interesting to me, actually, that Kiss was able to almost hurt my feelings in such a way. Because this validates the significance of the emotional contribution I made to what KISS meant to me as a kid. And really, this is something I should be appreciative of, considering the level of enjoyment I took away from my childhood KISS fan period. And now, KISS is approaching the end of their road. What a long, long, long road it's been. And quite honestly... I can't help but feel more than a little bit wistful about it. And at the end of all of this, my controlling thought is that regardless of what I or anyone else thinks of KISS, they won. They actually achieved their goals far beyond their wildest dreams. Regular people became pop cultural icons. They changed the world. I mean, how many of us can say that? They did what they initially set out to do. They won. And for that, ultimately, I tip my hat to them. And I wish them well. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care.
Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.